Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Sam Dykstra on a special deadline edition of the Pipeline podcast. We've got a couple of deadlines to talk about. The trade deadline, there have been several prospects who have been exchanged in deals already. We'll talk about those deals and look ahead to potentially others. We'll talk about the draft signing deadline, which is fast approaching, which draftees remain unsigned, which ones might not sign. Uh, how many do we think would go unsigned altogether? Jonathan Mayo will join us later in the show with a special interview that he did with Jacob Steinmetz and Ellie Kligman, the first two Orthodox Jewish uh, players to be taken in the MLB draft. And we'll look at the Rookie of the Year races. Where do those stand as we are uh, well over halfway through the season now? And we'll wrap up, as we always do, with a question in the mailbag. Sam, thanks for joining us. Jim, thanks for being here as always. Jonathan Mayo, uh, off recording somewhere on vacation, but did record an interview with Jacob Steinmetz and Ellie Kligman, and will be with us a little later on. Uh, A few trades have gone down involving prospects so far no huge names in terms of prospects no top 100 prospects Um, but we have had deals for nelson cruz going from minnesota to tampa bay for uh, right-handers joe ryan and drew stratman who both land on the twins top 30 prospects list at number six and number 13 Uh, sam your thoughts on that deal yeah, that, that one was really fascinating because in Nelson Cruz, the Rays are really buying at a time that I, I feel like they usually don't. They usually like to stick with what they have, and especially having a deep farm system, usually they can continue to bring guys up as they've done this year with Wander Franco and Taylor Walls and Vidal Brujan, who I know is back in AAA Durham now. But going out and getting a Nelson Cruz, bringing him into the lineup is going to be huge for them. Um, the guys hit forever, even at his age. Um, so that's exciting. But the price they paid here in Joe Ryan and Drew Strotman was one that the Rays could. I mean, honestly, like that's where they are right now. Um, they are the deepest farm system in baseball. When you are that, you can afford to give up two arms, both of which are knocking on the door uh, to the majors. Ryan is the better prospect of the two right now. Um, we slaughtered men at number six on the Twins list. I think his best pitch is what a lot of people call an invisible it's just really tough for, for guys to pick up because of some deception. It's not going to come in super hard. It usually comes in around 92, 96. Um, but the fact that it has a little bit of hop to it, a little bit of rise to it, guys just can't really pick it up. Even at the lower levels, he was throwing the, the fastball a ton and getting a lot of strikeouts with it. He's still doing that now um, at AAA. He's actually over in the Olympics right now, uh, but he had a 3.63 ERA uh, and – 75 strikeouts in 57 innings, only 10 walks. So he's hitting his spots, um, adding him to that twin system at a time where, you know, they're going to find out who they are here in the next couple months. But Joe Ryan, 
like I said, basically knocking on the door to the majors is certainly a good prospect for them to add. It, it, it's not a project necessarily. He could even come up second half of the year and potentially help them out, especially if they make a trade for a Jose Barrios or something like that. Strotman uh, slots in at number 13 right now. He has a deep package of pitches. He's got five pitches that he throws. Uh, the cutter is something that he added last year, but he also has an above average slider, a plus fastball, and really, really good control uh, typically. That slid back a little this year. He had 33 walks and 58 in the third innings, but against just solid numbers across the board at, at Durham, uh, 339 ERA, 62 strikeouts and 58 in the third innings. So what what the Twins are essentially doing here is they're not getting projects. They're not getting two prospects that are going to take a while to develop. They're not trying to rebuild immediately. They're two guys who, like I said, could conceivably come up this year. Um, I think both, I think Strotman's already on the 40 man. I think Ryan would have to be on the 40 man. The Rays have a bit of a 40 man roster crunch. This helps them there. So it, it feels a little bit like a win-win. We'll see what happens with Nelson Cruz and how much he's able to push the Rays potentially past the Red Sox and hold off the Jays and the Yankees and the AL East. But, you know, this is a, a move I think we've always wanted the Rays to make. Use your prospect capital, use your deep farm system to get a ready major league piece. And that's certainly what they accomplished here. Yeah, so we have a twin system that ranked number 12 in our preseason rankings. They, of course, have graduated some of their top prospects off of that list, but a couple of key additions here and a couple of right-handers, and uh, we'll be coming up on our re-ranking of the farm systems here over the next couple of weeks. will be interesting to see where they land. Jim, a uh, trade that involved uh, some players going to um one of your farm systems that you manage, the Cubs, trading Andrew Chafin to the A's for Greg Dykeman and Daniel Palencia. Yeah, and, and before I, I delve into that, I was just going to talk about the re-rank for one second, Jason, because uh, every time we update one of our lists with these trades, we get deluged with tweets like, how is this guy ranks, you know, not necessarily even the trade guys, but, you know, how is player X ranked so low on this list or why is this guy so high? People need to remember the current lists are the preseason lists. You know, the calendar is goofy this year with the draft getting moved. The, the lists are going to look much different. A month from now. Is that fair to say, do you think, guys? I think that it is definitely fair. will for a few of mine. I can tell you that much. But but anyway, because I, I noticed like we just – Greg Dykeman, we just added him to the Cubs list, and I saw people like, oh, how is Brendan Davis not number one on this list? Well, because the list is from February, and he was number two. In any case, getting to the trade now, um, you know, kind of two interesting guys they got here for Andrew Chafin, and I have a feeling – now, next week's podcast, I'll probably be talking about several more Cubs trades, and the list will look totally different than it does right now. But both guys are kind of interesting. You know, Dykeman was a guy, you know, I don't know if we were talking about him back into, but he was on our 2014 draft list at one point, coming out of high school, went to LSU, became a second-round pick. And he's had kind of a an up-and-down career. I mean, he, he hasn't stayed healthy in pro ball. His first two full seasons, he broke a hammate, and he hurt his shoulder diving for a fly ball. But when we last saw him before this year, he was in the Arizona Fall League. He led the league with nine homers in 23 games. The, the second guy had four, and he looked like he was really tapping into that power, which is his, his best tool. He, he's got a lot of left-handed power, and, and it's interesting because he was a a 232 career hitter in in his first three seasons in pro ball, and this year in AAA, he's kind of gone to a different approach. He's walking a ton more. He, he's actually already, even though he's only played in 60 games, you know blown away his career high with walks with 50. He's striking out less, still once a game, but but his strikeout rate's down from you know well over 30% previously in his career. And he's been more of a hit-over-power guy in AAA Las Vegas this year where the ball flies in general anyway. So, yeah, you know, I, I think he could be, you know, maybe an average hitter with some walks and average power or a below-average hitter with – with, with perhaps plus power. I mean, there's some offensive upside in him. And he's he's not a a five-tool guy by any means, but he, he knows how to use his fringy speed on the bases. He, he's, he's a, you know, gets the job done playing defense on the outfield corners. He's got a solid arm. Um, you know, I think there's something there. He's a little bit older. He's 26 now. He, he was he was a 22-year-old when he came out of LSU. But, but he's got some talent. And then 
The other guy they got in the trade is just getting going. Daniel Palencia, and he, I didn't rank him on the top 30 for now. Um, he's only pitched 14 innings in his pro career, already 21 and a half. He's in low A, $10,000 international signing a couple years ago out of Venezuela. And he can, he can, he can hit a hundred miles an hour with a fastball. He's got a power slider, but he's still at the point of his career where he needs to throw more strikes. He gets hit because he doesn't command his stuff real well. Not a real big guy, so I think he's a long-term reliever, but definitely uh, an interesting arm, kind of a, a lottery ticket, if you will, as the second player in the trade. All right, and let's move on to our third trade involving prospects, which sent Adam Frazier from the Pirates to the Padres in exchange for infielder, outfielder Tusapita Marcano, uh, right-hander Michelle Miliano, uh, 6'3", 21-year-old right-hander out of the Dominican Republic, and outfielder Jack Sawinski, uh, who's having a big season this year at 20, age 22, double uh, A with an OPS of 949. Sam, tell us a little bit about uh, the haul that the Pirates got for Adam Frazier. Yeah, I think this one kind of shocked a lot of people because Frazier was one of the bigger names on the market. Um, somebody who we all knew was basically going to be traded. The Pirates are not competitive this year. They're not going to try to be competitive and uh, try to cash in on an all-star infielder. Um, thought the, the price might be a little higher. That being said, I think Tukapita Marcano is a decent player. You know, This spring, he was really showing off for the Padres. They gave him a lot of run in the Cactus League. Uh, he can play multiple positions. I thought there was a the possibility, and I know this is pushing it, but there was like the possibility he could have maybe been their Jake Cronenworth this year. Um, now that would have been saying something. This is somebody who had only played at low A uh, technically uh, since 2019, but all the pieces were there to, for him to be a, a decent hitter. Um, he slots in right now at, at the number seven spot in this pirate system, which is pretty good. I mean, the pirate system, again, we were talking about the Rays and the, their depth. I think the, the pirates are getting there in terms of their own depth. Uh, he's bats from the left side, above average runner, potential to be above average hitter. Uh, like I said, can play multiple positions. So whatever the pirates are going to need uh, a couple of years down the line, he could fit that that mold. He's played the outfield. Uh, he's played third base, second base, shortstop, pretty much everything but first base uh, and center field, I guess, as well. But I think he's the big headliner here. Um, but you mentioned Sawinski, Jason, and in terms of his OPS this year, at the time of the trade, it was the sixth highest OPS in AA. Um, he's doing that in his age 22 season. This is somebody who repeated low A in, in 2018. He didn't do well at the level in 2017 um he was just okay at high a in 2019 and that's saying something for the the old california league uh but he sounds like he really shortened his swing tried to get it more compact this year and that's really allowed him to tap into more power his 15 homers are already a career high um he's taking more walks as well he's got his obp up to 398 slugging above 500 so he's checking all the boxes that you want to see somebody do in a breakout season um, now, is he deep enough to crack the Pirates' top 30 list? We, we have him off on that right now. I was going back and forth with Jonathan. He wasn't quite so sure if he should go on. We'll see it if he eventually does make it. But he is certainly broken out to the point where he became a legit number two piece in a trade for an all-star, like I said. Uh, and then the third piece in that, Miliano, um, kind of like what uh, Jim was saying about Palencia, He's just a lottery ticket at this stage. He has some really rough control numbers. Can maybe iron that out, be a better pitcher. But um, I think the two headliners here are, are bringing in Marcano, somebody who is basically made you ready. Sawinski, who's probably going to be able to help the team next year if he can carry that breakout into 2022. And then a, a lottery ticket Emiliano. And these are the types of trades that uh, the Pirates should be making at this point. Well, speaking of trades the Pirates should be making, they made another one, um, sending Clay Holmes to the Yankees for Diego Castillo and Hoy Park. And similarly, Jim uh, Park, another guy having a very big season in 2021. Yeah, and Castillo too. And I mean, when you're a team like the Pirates or any of these teams that, that isn't contending, you should always be churning your useful relievers who other teams want into prospects because I think it's so hard to develop 
consistent. Like if you look at the guys who are the best relievers in baseball, it's hard to, you know, there's the, the guys who aren't closers in particular, there, there's so much variance. So if you have a, a seventh inning guy who's hot, trade him and get a couple prospects and, and then develop some more arms. But yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, both these guys, I'm not sure I'm sold that either one of them is a future big league regular, but they have that kind of upside. And if I'm the Yankees, I could see why they did it. I, I do our Yankee system. They have a million middle infielders, young middle infielders. Parker Castillo were going to be guys they had to protect on the 40-man roster after the season. And it might have been a tough call to put either of them on there. I mean, I know Yankees fans are upset when they look at the statistics. Park and Castillo are both having their best years in pro ball by far. And they're like, what do we just do? You know, these guys are having unbelievable years. And, you know, they're interesting. You know, Park was a guy who, who's been on our Yankees top 30 in the past. He was a million-dollar signee out of Korea back in 2014. Kind of pushed him aggressively, and he never really hit until this year. I mean, he's he's got good bat-to-ball skills. He's got a patient approach. He's got plus speed. Pretty good defender at short. Um, you know, hitting for a lot more power this year. He, he's got 11 homers this year in about half as many games as he had in 2019 when he hit three. Um, you know, if the power is real – then you might have something there. If not, you know, maybe he's a utility guy. And, you know, same thing with Castillo, who is kind of, you know, he never had an ops. He, he broke into the Dominican Summer League at 17. And after he came to the U.S. for four straight years, he never had an ops over 659. Never really did much damage at the plate. This year in double A, 850 ops. He's got 11 home runs. He had eight and five seasons before this. Um, you know, he's, he's driving the ball more consistently. And again, I think if, if that power uptick is real, then you might have a regular here. You know, he, he's, he's a pretty, you know, sound player. And if not, you know, maybe he's more of a utility guy. But, like, if if I'm the, the Pirates, I'm making this kind of deal every time, you know, hoping that maybe I get a regular. Or if, if one of these guys becomes a utility guy, that's a win. And if I'm the Yankees, I have more middle infielders than I need to do with. I don't have enough 40-man roster spots. I, I can see why they parted with, it, with these guys. So it, it kind of made sense from both sides. All right, so those are the deals that have happened at this point as we record this podcast. Of course, we are expecting more prior to the deadline. Uh, I was looking back at the past eh, six years, I guess, um, and trades involving top prospects. And the number of top 100 prospects dealt in the the month leading up to the deadline has dwindled uh, over those years. We had Nine such players traded in 2015, eight top 100 prospects in 2016, seven in 2017, and then only two in 2018, five in 2019, and just one Taylor Trammell last year. Uh, What do you guys expect as we go into this trade deadline? Can we, are there the the names out there that could yield some, some top 100 prospects and deals? Maybe. I mean, I, I I was talking to a team this morning that was saying it's just it's tough to trade for prospects right now because teams are very protective of prospects and and, you know, how uh, valuable it is if you have a talented young player who's going to be extremely cost controlled for a while. It, it's tough to give those up. I mean, I still I, I don't know, Sam. I mean, it, it seems like as we get closer to the deadline and there's more pressure and fewer, maybe fewer guys uh available than teams up their willingness to, to make a big splash. I mean, I, I think we will see some, uh, see, see some trades made with top 100 prospects this week, but, but not as many certainly as we, we had in years past. Yeah. I think if the standard is last year and Taylor Trammell, I think we're probably going to go above that. Just looking at who is on the market right now and the names that we constantly see popping up and they're new ones all the time. I mean, we were talking before recording here that Trey Turner's name is all of a sudden on the trade market apparently. And the Nats can ask the, the Nats can like throw it out there and saying who wants to pay the price for Trey Turner. Maybe nobody really does, but if he gets moved, that's definitely going to bring back, you would think a top 100 caliber prospect, at least one. Um, but then you've got guys like Max Scherzer, Chris Bryant, some of these rentals, Joey Gallo, who does have a, another year of control. Uh, if he gets moved, I would have to think he would at least be on that line of getting a, a top 100 prospect back. So if we're if we're setting the over under at one and a half, I'm probably going to go over on that. Uh, but like you said, like teams are being so much more protective. I mean, look at the the prospects we talked about there at the beginning of the show. 
there aren't many who are really knocking on the door of top 100 status who have moved yet. So it, it's, it might not happen until one minute before deadline time that we see something really get moving and, and we see some of those big names moved. All right, we have another deadline to talk about, the draft signing deadline. We will talk about that after this break. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Sam Dykstra. We talked trade deadline, and now we're going to talk draft signing deadline. The trade deadline uh, on Friday and the draft signing deadline on Sunday, which, Jim, I know you love. Um, As we have been uh, moving toward that deadline over the past couple of months, it's been fast and furious. I know you report many of these uh, signing bonuses, and we're working in a condensed time frame this year because of the uh because of the the timing of the draft um so i I know you've been uh (laughs) very active here how many players at this point remain unsigned how many of those are first rounders Uh, all kinds of questions for you who do you think might not sign and why hit us with all this information okay well right now I believe, unless somebody signs while we're recording, I, I have my phone. I'm checking, monitoring my phone just in case that happens. Uh, I believe there's 18 players in the first 10 rounds who have not signed to this point. Um, your last year's draft, in the five-round draft, we had two guys who didn't sign. Um, I think virtually everybody will sign this year. You know, I, I put the over-under at about there's one guy we'll get to him in a second who i think is, is the leading candidate not to sign but i put the over under around one and a half i guess um but there, there's five first round picks who have not signed to this point that would be vanderbilt right-hander jack Leiter, who went number two to the rangers texas high school shortstop jordan lawler who went number six to the diamondbacks vanderbilt right-hander kumar rocker who went 10th to the mets uh georgia high school shortstop brady house who went 11th to the nationals and North Carolina high school shortstop Khalil Watson, who went 16 to the Marlins. So th- those are your five unsigned first rounders as of now. And Jim, specifically with that that Watson one, because I feel like the other ones, like we've even there have been some reports that Rocker was going to sign pretty quick, and it doesn't sound like any of the other ones are really bumping up against it. But it seems like Watson was the one that, at least in terms of what the the Marlins have left. It was going to be cutting it really close. What have you heard about that? And it seems like you're pretty sure he's going to sign. But like, what what do you get that optimism from? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, I mean, you you have a lot of factors going on with the draft, and we we've talked about how it's not just ability; it's signability. You know, we we've talked about how with this year's first round, you had guys who should have gone higher on talent went lower, and and vice versa. As teams were cutting deals up top, you know. Watson's essentially painted into a corner. The Marlins have signed everybody else in their top 10 rounds, and they've signed most of their post-10th rounders. None of of the guys they have left is going to be a big money guy in in rounds 11 through 20. And just for our listeners to understand the bonus pool system real quick, every team gets assigned a a bonus pool amount based on the agreed-upon value of each pick in the first 10 rounds. You don't have to sign the guys for that amount, but they use that to determine bonus pools. And if you go 5%, you, if you go over your bonus pool, up to 5% over, you pay a 75% penalty tax. If you go more than 5% over, you lose a first round pick in addition to paying that tax. And then the penalties go up if you go 10 or 15% over. Nobody in the, we're now in year 10 of the system, has ever given up a draft pick as a penalty for going over their pool by more than 5%. And I don't think anybody ever will purposefully. And so with the Marlins, you know, you can you can run the math. They can go to about four point five four million dollars on Cleo Watson um, 
without losing their future first round pick. And they're not going to give up a first round pick. And I think this is just a, a case where the Marlins go to Clint Watson. And, and look, there were tweets that the, Mar- you know, the Marlins put out that, you know, they made it known, hey, we've offered him four and a half million dollars. Like, we can't pay you more than this without losing a first round pick. And we aren't going to do that. Um, and while I think Clint Watson perhaps could have gotten more than four and a half million from a team earlier in the draft. And if you look at what the Reds paid Matt McLean last night, which is 4.625 million, that he probably would have gotten more money had he gotten to the Reds. He's just kind of stuck because if you're the Marlins and Cleo Watson doesn't sign, okay, you took a shot at a guy we had ranked as the fourth best player in the draft and you get the 17th pick in next year's draft. So you took a shot at a really talented player. It didn't work out, but but you get the pick next year. That's a gamble we're taking. If you're Cleo Watson, I think it's hard to turn down four and a half million. So I I think he ultimately will sign for four and a half and perhaps not be totally thrilled about it but um you know because he could have made more money had they had this played out differently but you know the marland i mean you can it's not like the old system where you could say oh we don't want to pay this or we can't i mean you can literally look at the numbers and see okay this is the most they can pay him without giving up a future first round pick which they're just not going to do jim uh, anthony decomo uh on monday tweeting that GM Zach Scott offered no comment on Kumar Rocker, the loans, the uh, Mets loan unsigned draft pick. Rocker was at City Field last week for a physical per sources, but his deal is not official yet. Scott says he won't dis- discuss Rocker's situation until after the August 1st signing deadline. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation as to what's going on with Kumar, and, and like everybody's been really, really quiet about it. Um, the, the, there is a sense that something happened with his physical. Um, as you, everybody probably remembers, or not everybody, but, but a lot of people listening to this probably remember, on the second day of the draft, you know, Joel Sherman reported that, that Rocker had agreed to a $6 million bonus from the Mets, and their, and their slot's worth about $4.7 million. And you can look, again, if you run the numbers, they can afford $6 million without – losing a future first round pick. And, and I confirmed it that same day too. That was true. And, and a lot of times it was teams trying to manage your bonus pool. You figure out exactly what, you know, a lot of these, these numbers and deals that we're hearing about were agreed upon on draft day. So teams know what they're working with, with their subsequent picks. And, you know, it's unclear as to what exactly may have happened with Kumar's physical. Um, there's different rules. Like there's a pre-draft MRI program that the top pitchers are subject to. I don't, you know, nobody's talking about any of the details on this. So we don't know if Kumar Rocker participated in the pre-draft MRI program, which if he did or didn't has different repercussions on what the Mets have to offer him minimally to get their, to get the 11th overall pick as compensation next year if Rocker doesn't sign. But, um, you know, everybody's been very quiet on this one. So there, there definitely does seem to be something going on. You know, Anthony's tweet, what Zach Scott said is, essentially the playbook and not that they're trying to you know get an advantage but i mean that's what you say if you're the gm and there's an issue with the physical and something might be going on you don't talk about it so we will we will see i mean you know the most famous one of these was brady aiken uh, a few years ago when he was the number one overall pick by the astros and that really only became public when his agent casey close was very unhappy with the way the astros were handling it and he went public so unless that happens we may not know a lot about what happens with rocker until that deadline um you know and and again i mean we don't know exactly what they found or how serious it is so it's hard to speculate on on how much the officer uh, the officer the offer might be potentially reduced um that one is a little vague now all that said i still think again without knowing the particulars it makes sense for the two sides to probably try to work out a deal because on the Mets side, they were elated that Kumar Rocker got to them with the 10th pick in the draft. And if it's not something that's going to be a long-term debilitating issue, like you still could feel like you have a lot of upside there. And if there is something going on with Kumar Rocker, it might, you know, and again, we don't know, like maybe he needs surgery, maybe he doesn't, you know, who knows what it is. He, it might behoove him to sign now and deal with it full-time as a professional pitcher than to take his chances and go back to next year's draft. And again, and this is pure speculation. Let's say he were to need surgery of some sort. Well, if that affects his ability to pitch next year, you know, what's he going to command in next year's draft? So we'll, we'll see. I go, we don't know the particulars, but it, it could make sense for both sides 
to still reach a deal without knowing, without us knowing what the particulars are of what exactly they're dealing with. All right, Jim, you hinted earlier at a leading contender not to sign, and it was not Kumar Rocker. Correct. And I'm going to run through the three first round other picks real quick. Jack Leiter going to, I think he'll sign. I mean, I I think all these other guys will sign. I think Jack Leiter will get the highest bonus in the draft. It might be slightly over slot. His slot's $7.8 million roughly. I think the Diamondbacks have been saving money. I think they're going to pay Jordan Lawler when all is said and done at six. I think he will wind up getting the second highest bonus in the draft behind Jack Leiter maybe in the vicinity of $7 million. And then Brady House with the Nationals, he might be the first of these guys to sign. Um, and, you know, his slot's $4.5 million. I think he signs, you know, somewhere in the 4 to $5 million range. But but the one, if I had to if I had to bet on one guy who doesn't sign or, or the most likely guy not to sign, that would be, Judd Fabian with the Red Sox, who's their second round pick. And and there's a lot going on with that one. And again, this is just kind of how the baseball draft works differently than other drafts. And Judd Fabian was a guy who came into the year as a potential top five or 10 pick. Um, the Red Sox picked fourth. And I think if Judd Fabian had, had a really good year, he would have been in contention to possibly go forward to the Red Sox because I, I know they liked him a lot coming into the year. And instead, Judd Fabian was striking out at about a 40% clip for the first six weeks of the season. Um, and and his stock was taking a dive as a result. And then he made a two-strike uh, adjustment, and, and it paid off. And he just went on a tear for six weeks and was playing his way back up into the first round. And... And then he, the last three weeks of the season, he didn't really play that well. So it was kind of a roller coaster season for Judd Fabian. And I believe that the Judd Fabian, I think when the Orioles took Colton Kowser at five and they saved money, they cut a deal with Colton Kowser, who's a talented player but wasn't projected to go that high in the draft, the guy that they were going to take with their second pick at number 41 in the second round was, was Judd Fabian. And, and word is that they were going to pay him $3 million. And the problem is the Red Sox took him at pick 40. So he didn't get to the Orioles at pick 41. And it's believed, you know, the Red Sox still haven't signed their fifth rounder and they have some guys in rounds 11 through 20. Boston's fifth rounder reportedly may command a seven figure deal. And if that happens, the most the Red Sox can offer Jet Fabian is about $2.1 million. Um, and, you know, you have the situation where he thought he was going to get three, and now he's looking at closer to two. Um, you know, there is some risk if he goes back to school. He, he did graduate early from high school and enrolled in what would have been his senior season in high school. He was a freshman in the spring of 2019 of Florida. But, you know, he's 21 years old, um, you know, Teams look at age, especially for hitters. If he went back and struggled next year, he might not get $2 million. So we'll see. But I think he's definitely the high, the, the, the leading candidate to not sign. And again, with Boston, you know, to me, you know, like, like it, it's a lot easier for the team to be made whole than the player if they don't sign. You know, the Red Sox took a gamble on a guy that they didn't think they'd ever have a chance to pick at 40. And they may, they'll make a run at him and, and offer him what they're going to offer him. And if they don't sign him, they get picked 41 next year. So it, it's kind of like I was saying with Cleo Watson, you know, you took a shot on a guy you thought would have no way of getting to you and you'll make what you feel is a good offer. And even though that player may have felt like he could have got more money elsewhere, if, you know, you're the team that drafted him. And unfortunately, if he doesn't sign, you get basically the same pick back the following year and, you know, made a run at a guy who, who you shouldn't have had a shot at. So, um, you know, if Fabian does go back to Florida, he is taking a risk, but, that that may happen. I and you know everybody else, barring like some kind of surprise with a physical. I, I don't think I, I you know I, I think everybody else in the top ten rounds is pretty signable. All right, and you can keep up to date with all of the draft signings and signing bonuses on the MLB.com draft tracker. That's MLB.com/slash/draft/slash/tracker. We've got all the bonuses for. Every player in the top 10 rounds located there. You're listening to the MLB Pipeline podcast. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, Jonathan Mayo will talk to Jacob Steinmetz and Ellie Kligman, the first two Orthodox Jews to ever be drafted. That's coming up next right after this. 
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I am pleased to uh, welcome into uh, this interview Ellie Kligman, 20th round draft pick of the Washington Nationals, and Jacob Steinmetz. Newly minted Arizona Diamondback. Uh, Jacob, I'm going to start with you. Third round pick you just signed. I'm sure it's been uh, a whirlwind for you, but take us through just from the getting drafted up until you signed, what that, what the experience was was like for you. Um, Yeah. So I got drafted on, I think it was Monday. Um, So then that the rest of the week, they wanted they they asked me to come down Thursday, but I asked them if I could just have the weekend with my family, um, and they they gave it to me. They've been very supportive of that and stuff like that. So I was able to spend the week with my family and kind of just settle down. Uh, it had been a long couple months before that, so just just being able to spend some time with them, spend some time with my friends, and just relax a little bit definitely was a great opportunity. And then I got down here on uh, I flew down on Sunday, I think it was. Um, no, it was Monday. I flew down on Monday. Um, and then Monday kind of just relaxed the rest of the day. Got, got like a tour of the facility, um, kind of figured stuff out. got settled in and then I signed on Tuesday. It's exciting stuff. Salt river is beautiful too. That's one of yeah, the best. It's very nice uh, over here. One of the best. It's very hot also. Yes, that, that's true. <laughs> Ellie, very hot. Ellie, you had to wait for day three. You're used to the heat cause you're from Vegas, but, uh, uh, you know, how different was your experience? Because, you know, I think like, there was a good sense that Jacob was go- going to go at some point in day two. With you, it was kind of like, especially with only 20 rounds, you probably weren't 100% sure whether you were going to get drafted at all. So what, what, was, what was the draft experience like for you? Yeah, so um, we had talked to like, a, a, little, a couple teams, but we didn't really know if I was going to get drafted or not. And – I didn't really come in with any expectations or anything. I was just kind of, you know, going with whatever happened. And then I was on the bus with Team Israel going to Hartford, Connecticut. And my dad called me, and he's like, the Nationals are drafting you. And I was like, I mean, I was a little in shock, but um, it was a cool experience. And then uh, they, they told the guys on the bus when it happened, and that was pretty fun. But, um, you know, hearing those words are pretty crazy. Right, especially I would imagine because, you know, obviously you were hoping to hear those words eventually, but it could have happened now. It could have happened three years from now. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. Now, obviously I have both of you on for a reason. It's not just two random high school kids who got drafted. Um, and as a, as a Jewish sports writer and fan of baseball, um, you know, this, this was a, kind of a, a, a monumental occasion a draft for me like just being able to you know, Ellie I didn't I didn't get a chance to talk about you on on air but Jacob I, I did just for the nature of our broadcast but I want to ask both of you uh, you know as the first two as as long as far as we know orthodox or observant Jews however you want to frame it to ever be drafted you know, when did it sort of enter into your consciousness that that was going to be something that would be something people wanted to, to talk about. Ellie, let me start with you. Um, well, I guess it kind of started in January um, when the first Chabad.org article came out about me. And that's actually when I met Jacob. Um, that was probably the first time I realized that this was a real thing that a lot of people cared about. Um, and obviously, I didn't, I didn't know about Jacob at the time. But, um, you know, once, once all that publicity came out, and then he uh, obviously got really hot over the summer, and then everyone kind of started talking about it. Um, that's probably when I realized was probably this spring, I would say. Jacob, how about how about for you? Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I just wanted to say your Hebrew was pretty good on the broadcast. I spent a year in Israel, so it's a little rusty, but thank you. Yeah, it was pretty good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, uh, the, the whole draft process really started, um, I want to say, summer of 2020. I started getting a little interest. 
Um, but nothing, it was like a little bit just here and there, nothing really crazy was going on until I guess also around like this off season. And then this spring when I went down to Florida, um, and at that point, once, once all that happened, I started getting more attention. I kind of, I kind of knew that it was pro it was, it was going to happen at some point. Uh, I just, I wasn't sure at what round or what day and stuff like that. But obviously, like Ellie said, also, I, I didn't even know he existed and he said the same for me until that Chabad article came out. Um, so that was definitely a really cool experience to know that I wasn't really, I wasn't the only one out there that was trying to do this. Um, so yeah, I, I'd say also probably this spring, it kind of hit me. It's probably the, the, you know, the only time in baseball history where, you know, draft info got spread by Chabad. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, that's a new <laughs> thing. It, you know, is it the kind of thing, listen, you guys have grown up, this, you know, being observant and observant families, and that's been such a priority for you. So I would imagine part of you is probably like, well, this is kind of who I've always been. But is, do you guys recognize, though, how, like, that this hasn't happened before and, and why people are so taken with this story so far? Um, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of understand it. Like you said, I mean, at first – it was kind of just like, that's who I, who I am, who I've always been. Um, so it, it kind of just stumbled me. But then once I did get taken and I, I had all these people reaching out and everyone saying they like showing their, a lot of support and stuff like that. And I was just getting random emails from people that I didn't even know existed or from wherever in the world. Um, and just knowing that every, all, 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 most of the Orthodox Jews had my back and, had, and were supporting me, it was just, it was a great feeling. How about you, Ellie? Yeah, I'd say my, my experience is pretty similar to that, um, especially when uh, some articles started coming out and then this all kind of became a reality. I definitely realized that the support was pretty high. Like, and just realizing all, all like social media platforms and texts and stuff that I get and um, some of the um, things that people said to my rabbis and stuff, that was kind of when – when you see all that support that you get, it kind of puts everything into perspective of what you're doing. You know, it's been interesting because, you know, as you guys probably know, you know, uh, there are lots and lots of different, you know, sort of flavors of Jew, you know, in terms of levels of observance and what people do. And, you know, we don't always <clears throat> agree on everything or get a, or even get along, but it seems it's been pretty universal um, uh, seeing the Jewish community as a whole support. Is that something you felt outside of like, you know, your own or, or the Orthodox community that, you know, even the most secular of Jews think that this is like a pretty cool deal. Ellie, why don't you answer that one first? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And like all types of Jews and observances and uh, their observance levels have shown that support and not only Jewish people, but uh, not Jewish people that I've met have also been super supportive um, throughout my baseball career. And especially um, once when things started to heat up a little bit, but for really everybody that I've run into, it's been a really positive experience. Yeah, I'd probably say the same thing, honestly. But like, like you said, with even even the non-Jews, like all my coaches throughout the bunch of years have always been very supportive and willing to accommodate with really anything that I needed. Um, so just having that, and then like you said, also my like my dad said he'd have like Hasidic people reaching out, not religious people reaching out, just like kind of all over the the spectrum of Judaism, like you said. Um, just it kind of seems like me and Ellie just being able to get to where we were kind of unified everyone for a little bit, at least. Jacob, you touched on this a little bit, uh, just in terms of, you know, knowing that Ellie was out there. Uh, so maybe I'll, Ellie, I'll ask you this. When you found out about Jacob and you guys sort of met each other, did that, you know, not that I got the sense that either of you, you know, felt this difficult or uncomfortable being kind of put in this sort of unusual spotlight, but, you know, knowing that someone else who, is going to go through the same thing, whether your pro career starts now, Ellie, or later, you know, later on, like to know that there is someone like Jacob who knows exactly the things that you need to do to be able to make this happen that are so unusual for the world of baseball. Like, does that, does that provide some, some ease or some comfort? Uh, definitely. Knowing, I mean, we're kind of going through this process. Um, I don't know about exactly together, but we're, we're, we have a lot of the same experiences of what we're doing. And if, you know, we're both in pro ball. We kind of both, um, we are kind of doing it together in a sense, but um, I would say definitely it is nice to have, it's nice to have someone else doing it. Jacob, you were saying that like your coaches through all the years have been, you know, very accommodating and understanding. Um, 
I'm just wondering for both of you, because you've both played, you know, you've played in you know, some showcases and, and, and things like that in like a wider arena, uh, you know, whether or not there was any sort of overt anti-Semitism at any point, were there any times where people were just like, didn't understand or that, you know, you had to explain, you know, go the extra mile to sort of let people understand, you know, who you were and why that's such an important part of your identity? So I never really had um, any of the, like the, any of the hate or anti-Semitism stuff. Um, everyone that I've run into has been very supportive, whether it was my teammates, my coaches, or even parents or team, team or players on the other team. Um, but there have definitely been times where I've had to just explain multiple times to, to someone, whether it was them trying to call me on a Friday night or Saturday. I'm like, Hey, I can't answer the phone. And I'll tell them on, obviously I'll tell them either Saturday night or on Sunday. And I'll just have to remind them constantly, but nothing, nothing really that was like, on, like on purpose, really, I guess, to just be hateful. Um, everyone's been very supportive and trying to understand as best as they could. And obviously it's something new to, to them. So it's going to take a little bit, but it's been, it's been working out pretty well so far. How about for you, Ellie? I've pretty much had the same exact experience. Uh, mostly people that are, really just curious and wanting to learn about what we do on Chavez and what we do on holidays, what we can, what we can't eat. Um, I've had people that are super interested in it. They've come join us for Friday night dinner. Um, but all the experiences have been positive for me. You know, I think, you know, it's interesting because I've long been, you know, really intrigued by Jews in baseball because there've been so few, um, you know, it's why I got involved with, you know, uh, telling the story about team Israel and the world baseball classic and things like that. But most of the, the, the Jewish players to date, they embrace being known as Jewish baseball players, but by and large, their identity hasn't gone beyond that. That was kind of the, the idea of the, of the movie. It was taking some of them to Israel so they could kind of dig into that and explore it. Um, you, you guys bring it to a, you know, a, a whole different level. I mean, how excited are you? As you said, like, as you've, as you've come across people, Ellie and people like are, are interested in you and, you know, they might come over for, for uh, Shabbos dinner or things like that to, to be able to show that you, not only are you, you know, I think those guys are baseball players first, but they're also Jews. Like it's not that they run away from it. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm explaining, I don't want to belittle what, like what they feel or what they believe, but like you guys are, like the, the Jewish part is first and foremost, and you happen to play baseball. Is that, do you feel that's like a fair differentiation or do you want to just be known um, as a baseball player? You're hoping that people won't look at this as some sort of oddity. Uh, I mean, I think people looking at it as an oddity is not a bad thing at all. Cause I think what me and Jacob are doing are um, we're kind of showing people that you don't have to, you know, change what you believe or um, do any of that kind of stuff for what you want to do in life. And I think being the odd man, the odd man out, I guess you could say, um, is not a, is not a bad thing. And I'm, if people want to look at it like that, then then that's good. In my, in my opinion, <laughs> Jacob, uh, you know, sort of piggybacking off of that a, a little bit. I mean, uh, everyone's been accommodating, but have you ever felt pressure, especially as you started to? you know, gain a little more prominence, you know, in your high school years. And, and Ellie, you can follow up after Jacob too, like to, to change at all from, from, you know, what you've been doing your, your entire life to, to fit into baseball norms. No, I never, <clears throat> I've never felt pressure um, to, to change um, like my, my dedication, I guess, to my religion. Kind of, kind of what Ellie said, I, I'd say I agree a little bit. Um, uh, obviously, be, just us being Orthodox Jews and be, having been drafted and being the first known ones, um, it's going to come with all that attention and stuff like that. Um, but hopefully throughout the years, uh, uh, like I, I'm not saying that people can't look at me as a Jewish baseball player, but hopefully all that attention will go away and people will just look at me, I guess, as a baseball player and see that it's a normal thing that anyone could really do. And so kind of like you said, where it's just like a good thing that you could see that you could stay committed to your religion and also just be a normal baseball player. How about for you, Ellie? And one thing, you know, <clears throat> I don't want to spend too much time on this, but that differentiates you, that just so people know who aren't, like you can be an Orthodox Jew and still have different, you know, things that you believe. Ellie, you won't play, you know, uh, on our Sabbath, and Jacob will. Was there ever any pressure for you to sort of 
change how you did things? I'm not at all, actually. I mean, I've kind of, that's just kind of what I've done my whole life. And that's something that I've never really wanted to change. Um, and in terms of the pressure, I mean, I feel like I have the same amount of pressure as every other baseball player in my situation. But I don't think the religious has added any pressure for me because I think it's just, it's part of who I am. So I don't really look at it as anything, anything different. I'm just playing baseball. And then there's kind of the added stuff, I guess you could say. Jacob, how did you come to the decision, you know, that you would play, you know, and you won't ride in a car, you'll have to walk to wherever you're going and you're in Arizona now. So walking is, is not a joke. You know, it's, uh, it's awfully hot, but you know, in all seriousness, you know, was that something that you struggled with at all or you had to sort of find what you were comfortable with? Um, so, I mean, I, I've just been, I've always been doing it. Um, I guess I just started at a young age and, my dad has has said in the in the past, I guess, that if we if we had to go back on it, maybe we'd do it a little bit different. Um, but I mean, I think for me, I just I draw I drew a line, um, and that's just something that I won't cross. Uh, and just so as I as, I guess it's kind of something that I've just always been doing. Um, I never really thought about. I never really thought the other way. I guess. Just a couple more questions. I'm the son of a history professor, so I always try to put things in, in, in historical context. And my mom taught a lot of uh, Jewish history and history of the immigrant. And, you know, I don't know if you guys studied this at all, but when people came from Eastern Europe, Jews, and they largely went to the Lower East Side in, in New York, um, one of the best conduits for people to feel like they belonged here was baseball. It became this big thing. Like, well, if you followed baseball and you liked baseball or you played baseball, then that was a way into American life. But I think with that also came assimilation that was expected where people had to kind of give up who they were from the countries they came from, maybe gave up some of their, their religious beliefs at the same time. So I find that what's going on with you guys now kind of flipping that script upside down in that you're entering into the game and the game is showing a willingness to adapt to you. Uh, you know, Jacob, let me, let me sort of pose that to you because you're already now with an organization and the Diamondbacks were amazing with everything they said in terms of like, well, we're going to just make this work. Um, you know, with that sort of historical context in, in mind, like, do you guys appreciate just like that? It it feels it feels different, and maybe especially at a time where anti-Semitism is on the rise in a lot of places, um, you know, in this country, you know, around the world, to have that kind of acceptance seems a little unusual. Um, I, I I'd say yes and no, maybe. <clears throat> um, I mean, to that historical context, I guess it is kind of flipping the script. Um, but that's I mean. I'm assuming Ellie's the same way. That's kind of what, what we're going for, that people can look to us and see that, hey, we're both able to I – mean, we didn't both we didn't get drafted just because, you know, we're Jewish and it would be a cool story. We both obviously could play baseball. Um, so hopefully people will see that and be like, yeah, well, you're also able to stay committed to your religion and you don't really have to shy away from it or be shy with it at all. I mean, the Diamondbacks have been very supportive with it. I'm sure the Nationals also, same thing. Um, but just they've been really – they've really been great so far. Ellie? Yeah, I mean, I have to agree with him. And I think the acceptance part is, it's something that I personally have experienced a lot of throughout my baseball career, whether it's um, getting two games on Sunday instead of one on Chavez or just things like that, where they're moving games around. Um, we've moved high school games from, from pace off and, and stuff like that. So I think the acceptance thing is, is something that I've experienced a lot of. And I think, you know, one thing my dad always said was, uh, if you're good enough, they'll help you. So I think if um, we can show that, obviously, we're good enough baseball players, but I think people and teams and throughout really whatever age you are, the acceptance is becoming a lot more prevalent than maybe it has in, in different times. That kind of feeds nicely into the last thing I wanted to ask you. And you guys are both very young and you're just starting out. Um, so the idea of you as role models may seem, you know, a little bit strange, maybe within your own communities, you've already been able to do that, but this happening on such a national stage has brought so much attention to who you guys are and how important that is to you. 
how how seriously do you carry that i won't call it a burden but the, you know the the weight of knowing that there are a lot of younger uh i mean we'll start with jews in the orthodox community jews everywhere but even you know even non-jews who felt like they've been you know treated as as other right knowing that you can still be who you are and that can be important and do the thing you you love if you, you know if you're good at it do you recognize that like people are now watching what you're doing and and you're going to open the door for a lot more people in future you know in the future um ellie why don't you answer first and we'll let jacob have the final i mean i'd say i think i did start to realize it especially after we both got drafted but at the end of the day the way i view it in terms of being a role model is I could, all of this attention for me and Jacob started because we were who we were. We weren't like, so I think in terms of being a role model, we just like personally, I just want to stay about who I am and what I do because all of this has happened because I'm being what I am. So I don't think I'm going to think about being a role model and the pressure that I has just being myself. And hopefully that can, that can play into being a role model, I guess. Jacob. Yeah. I'd, I'd say I agree with him as well. Um, Kind of, kind of like you were saying. It, I wouldn't say really it's a burden. I mean, kind of like I was saying before, where at some point, hopefully a couple years in, um, I'll just I'll be like a I'll hope not be a regular baseball player. Obviously, uh, that Orthodox Jewish part's always going to be there, and I'm proud of it and everything. Um, but hopefully, just kids will kids will look up and see that me and Ellie were both able to do this, and kind of like you said, even if it's a non-Jewish kid, and be see that you're able to be who you are no matter what. Um, and if you're if you stay committed to the game and practice and work hard enough, I mean anything's really possible no matter who you are, what you do, and just how you live. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, our thanks to Jacob Steinmetz and Ellie Kligman for joining us, and I know that was uh, a very special inter- interview for Jonathan Mayo to do. Jim, you saw uh, Steinmetz at the uh, draft combine. Yeah, he, he, he was at the combine. I had a number of teams say, you know, and again, we kept hearing from teams that um, they thought the most valuable part of the combine for them was getting face-to-face time um, with, with players, which, you know, has not happened as much, you know, in the last couple of years with, with the coronavirus. And, and I even had a couple mention, you know, him in particular, Steinmetz in particular, uh, you know, just taught him discussing how he would kind of navigate pitching, you know, with his faith and the requirements to go along with that. And, and I had teams say they really enjoyed talking to him. Um, and I don't, I didn't get to see him pitch. I think he pitched the day after I left, um, they, they had some games on Saturday and, but, but he threw well there too and wound up going to third rounds, you know, signing with the, with the Diamondbacks and, you know, and Kligman's an interesting guy as well, you know, 20th round pick as a catcher by the Nationals, you know, probably, you know, depending on what happens with Brady House, how much money, you know, they have left over, maybe the Nationals can, can make a little bit of a run at him, but, you know, we, we may see him in college, but, you know, kind of a fascinating story that, that these are the first two, you know, Orthodox Jews ever drafted, and, and obviously there's there's some, you know, stuff with their faith that, you know, you have to kind of reconcile with, with trying to play games over the weekend, but, um, you know, kind of, it was just a fascinating story. Okay, let us move on and talk about this year's Rookie of the Year races, uh, we've been monitoring throughout the year. We do a uh, biweekly look at the rookies in both leagues, our rookie power rankings. And last time we took a look, um, and this has been the case for a while now, uh, Marlins pitcher Trevor Rogers has been on top of the, the list overall. Um, and in the National League, He's been ahead of Ian Anderson, who I think 
was one of the leading contenders going into the season uh, behind Key Brian Hayes, who was the prohibitive favorite to win the uh, National League Rookie of the Year award. He, of course, has missed quite a bit of time due to injury. Um, also on that list, Jonathan India and Jazz Chisholm. Jonathan India has been uh, red hot as of late. He topped last week's uh, hottest rookies list that looks at uh, the hottest rookies over the past fortnight. On the American League side, uh, Rangers outfielder Adolis Garcia, a bit of a surprise at the top of that list. Casey Mize, Luis Garcia, a couple of uh, pitchers, um, and then the odds-on favorite in the American League, Randy Rosarina, who just hasn't really turned it on like I think a lot of people expected, um, is also on that list, but just hasn't made uh, that huge impact that that so many people thought he would after what they saw uh, in the postseason last year. But guys, as we uh, are about two months remaining in the season, if you had to name your American League and National League Rookies of the Year right now, who would you choose? Sam? Yeah, so I think you do have to go with Rodgers right now. But, I mean, if we're projecting forward, which is what we normally do for these power rankings, we should note that he's on the injured list right now with lower back spasms. Uh, don't know how long he's, it's going to take for him to come back from that. But if the season ended right now, I mean, he's pretty clearly been the best rookie in this class. Uh, he's got a 2.37 ERA. He leads all rookies in Fangraphs were at 3.2, uh, made 19 starts, 106 and a third innings. He's striking out more than a batter in an inning. His K per nine is actually at 10.6. So Rodgers, I think, is ticking all those boxes in the NL. Nobody's really threatened him to take over in that race. You mentioned Jonathan India. Uh, India's reaching base a ton, as it feels like everybody in Cincinnati has reminded me uh, in the last month, and that's great for him. I mean, he's got an OBP over 404, but he's, he's not really hitting for power. He's got just a slugging percentage of 418, uh, only eight home runs and 360 plate appearances and seven stolen bases, and his defense at second base, according to the metrics, isn't stellar. But if he keeps reaching base at this clip and, and hitting in the way that he is, I mean, if Rodgers – lands on the IL for a long period of time. He could eclipse him. That's certainly within the realm of possibility. I think the AL is more wide open, but to your question, uh, Jason, it, it was who would you vote for right now? It's probably got to be Garcia. He's got 22 home runs. That's most of any rookie. Um, that's six more than Eric Haas in Detroit, who has his own resurgence, which has been kind of fun to watch. Um, but don't rule out Akil Badu, too. Those guys are neck and neck in war, and I know war is not an end-all, be-all statistic, but – Badu stolen 14 bases. He's hitting 277 with a 344 OBP and 480 slugging percentage. Uh, I keep expecting him to drop off, and it felt like he did a little bit in that first half, but has really taken off again. He's, he's playing pretty good defense. The only thing for him is, is he going to have enough playing time uh, to overcome Garcia? Right now their difference in plate appearances is about 70, uh, between 70 and 80. So that's something that could – play into that. But um, I think that AL, if the season ended right now, I think that AL voting would be like wide open and across the board. And I think you would get, see multiple guys get votes as opposed to the NL, which is pretty clearly Rogers right now. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, I agree with all that. You know, starting with American league, I still wonder if Adolis Garcia is going to come back to the pack a little bit. You know, his, I just look at that six to one strikeout to walk ratio and I keep waiting for pitchers to exploit it. And they really haven't so far. Um, you know, you could, you know, it's possible he could fall off and, and Luis Garcia, not related, could win it. Cause I think Luis Garcia has been the best pitcher best rookie pitcher in the American league. And he, he's playing a part in the pennant race. And, and I agree with everything you said in, in the national league, Sam. I mean, one guy who I still think can make a run is Dylan Carlson. Who's got just kind of okay numbers so far, but if he, he got hot in the last couple months of the season, that, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, I really do like Dylan Carlson and I could see him maybe making a run, uh, you know, maybe jazz Chisholm too. But, but I, I do agree with you, especially if we were just voting today. And, you know, I mean, Trevor Rogers is, is, is far and away your winner in the National League to this point. Yeah, Carlson, second among all rookies in total bases behind only Garcia. Uh, he's actually tied with Ryan Mountcastle, who has 16 home runs 
on the season uh, along uh, uh, in second place behind uh, Garcia as far as rookie home runs. Um, Andrew Vaughn, a guy who uh, we had in our preseason rankings, I think he was third behind Key Brian Hayes and Randy Arena and got off to a very slow start, but uh, he's starting to put it together a little bit. Yeah, I'm surprised he isn't walking more. Um, I mean, I'm not surprised he's hitting for power and being productive. I'm, I'm a little surprised his on-base percentage is under 320. So I think there's some some upward potential for him as well. Because I, I do think he's an advanced hitter who, who maybe his numbers go up as he gets more acclimated to the big leagues. And, and, he, and, you know, he deserves a lot of credit, too, because not only has he been productive, but when they had the early season injuries, you know, to Jimenez and, and Robert in their outfield, he really does not have much outfield experience. And, you know, he's, you know, played you know he, he's not been a gold glover but you know he's gotten the job done well enough and, and been productive for the white Sox. yeah and i think we have to remember too like he was thrown into the fire like he had a great spring like everybody thought this is somebody who should be potentially uh on the major league team coming out of the spring but at the same time like he didn't play a full minor league season before this um so him improving as the season's gone along and to be an above-average major league hitter right now, it's just by about 10%, but still there. And there's the potential for more as he gets more acclimated to the majors. I think it's is certainly a point in his favor, even if it doesn't mean he's going to get Rookie of the Year votes. He could still be a very productive player for the White Sox for a long time. All right, you're listening to the MLB Pipeline podcast, and we are going to wrap up as we always do by answering a question in the mailbag. This one comes from Nicholas Robertson. He asks... How likely is it that Nolan Gorman and Jordan Walker play something else other than third base as the Cardinals appear to be set there with Nolan Arenado? They both appear to have the skill set to move very quickly through the minor leagues, and Gorman is almost ready. Yeah, I, I think it's fairly likely. I mean, you, you, we've seen the Cardinals have been giving Gorman exposure to second base this year. He's not your classic second baseman, but I, in this era of shifting and positioning, you know, we've seen the Max Muncy's of the world play second base. Uh, you know, I think you could get by with, with Nolan Gorman. Uh, potentially at second base and, and and Walker who's you know first round pick last year you know super interesting guy is also very big for a third baseman you know when I was covering stuff in high school there was a lot of speculation that he would eventually wind up in right field you know he's you know been a little erratic at third base so far early in his pro career so if if Arenado you know stays put and there, there's no reason right now to think that he won't you could see I think Gorman is the second baseman in the future and and Walker eventually on an outfield corner yeah I'm, I'm at the same spot the one I would question maybe is like maybe moving Walker to first just because of his size at, at six foot five I know the arm could probably play in an outfield corner um, but it, it is interesting to note, like you did there, Jim, that the the Cardinals basically from the beginning of the season started giving Gorman reps at second base. Um, so they they knew what they were up against with him. And, and this isn't something new that they're going to try to throw at him. That's something they've been working on all season long uh, to get him ready, knowing that the other Nolan is blocking at the hot corner. I will be interested to watch. Like I know Arenado has a couple of opt outs coming up. Uh, and this has been a down year for the Cardinals. Would he opt out? I don't know. And I think Walker's too far away to to have that conversation of like, oh, he's going up against Nolan Arenado. He's, he just reached a high A a little while ago. So I think it's going to be a while until we see that defensive move for him like we did it for Gorman. Um, but both of those guys will have to because Arenado's arguably the best defensive third baseman in the game right there with Matt Chapman. All right, thank you, Nicholas, for your question, and thanks, everybody, for listening. That's going to do it for this week's MLB Pipeline podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, please leave us a rating and a review. Thanks again, everybody. See you next week.